You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. As we continue our time of worship, turn your Bible to Genesis 15. Thank you, Adam, band, praise team, and Regen for leading us in worship so faithfully. It blesses us. uh, Singing is a means of grace. We're called to sing some 400 times in the Bible. So as important as preaching the word is, singing the word is vital as well. And you do it faithfully. And I think because of the excellence and the stewardship of the singing ministry here, uh, it has fostered in Lakeview a singing church. This is a singing church. And you have been since... Heather and I have been introduced to you some 24 years ago. Well, let's pray, and we're going to be looking tonight, starting in Genesis 15, verse 7, uh, through the end of the chapter. As I said this morning, I believe it is, if not the most underrated text in the Bible, it's certainly, I believe, the most underrated text in the Old Testament. So I'm glad you're here tonight. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that our God is the ancient of days. You're not a novice. And Lord, we come to you as one uh, who has declared the end from the beginning, one who is infinite in his perfections, and one in whom we know uh, through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of Christ. And Father, we want to know you in an even deeper way tonight. And we know that comes through Uh, the study of your word. May we be found faithful with this text tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on April the 16th, 1963, 60 years ago today, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail in which he responded to a group of local pastors who had criticized him for leading these marches and these street protests. King defended himself, writing famously, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Well, certainly we agree with that statement though we may have different perspectives on what justice is. Contrary to what our prevailing culture asserts, justice is not equal outcomes. That's Marxism. We're not promised equal outcomes in this life, nor are we promised equal outcomes in the new heavens and the new earth. Justice is fidelity to, complete adherence to, the moral law of God. That's what justice is. And in the end, the only justice that matters is God's perspective on justice. That should play out, certainly, in our relationships and in the world. Psalm 97, 2, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. If you were to hear many of the Christian songs on the radio today, you would think it was love. 
that is the foundation of his throne. And certainly our God is a God of love. But it's interesting, the psalmist says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 99 verse 4, the king in his might loves justice. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. There is, and this is our hope, and even as we consider what happened in Dadeville last night, that horrible moral tragedy, this is our hope. There is no injustice that won't be made right. So the question is, how can this kind of God, this righteous and just God, judge the world in righteousness? Let me add to that question. How can justice be the foundation of his throne and yet promise to keep his covenant promise to save sinful people like us without impugning on his justice? And how can we, who are sinful, have assurance of our salvation considering his justice and his righteousness? Well, our text is going to help answer those questions tonight in a manner that, if you've never read this passage thoughtfully, may end up shocking you. And I think that's the intent. Now, for context, we saw this last time, God had reiterated his commitment to Abram. He told him not to fear, and he promised to be his shield. He promised to be his protector and his shield, which Abram needed that because he had made a lot of enemies by taking on King Chedorlaomer and those three kings aligned with him. And God promised Abram to be his reward. If you persevere, here's what you get at the end. You get me. You get me. And God promised a son from his own body who would not only be his heir, he would be the agent of salvation to the nations. That's important for us to remember. We read that tonight in Galatians 3. The key to Abraham's persevering in joy, the key to Abram's well-being, and the key to ours is that God speaks promises to us, and if we believe them, we will be justified. That's the key. And if we don't believe them, we remain outside the promises and the blessings of that covenant. In other words, God's justice is the foundation of his throne. Well, that brings us to verse 7. And the first thing we see here is the covenant maker. The covenant maker. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, let me just give you a fancy term. And this is what is known as a historical prologue at the beginning of a covenant. There's always at the beginning of these covenants, the one who is the one initiating and making the covenant tells us who he is. The one who's making the covenant. The, the covenant is only as good as the one who makes the covenant. 
And here we see who is making this covenant with Abram. I am the Lord who brought you out. He will later use that exact formula to introduce the Mosaic covenant at Sinai. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, both covenants are grounded in grace. And this is designed to encourage Abram's faith. God has shown Abram in the past, and he is the ancient of days. And this is to fuel his period of waiting in the present. Because this God does not change. The same one who delivered him out of Ur is the same one who will be his sufficiency today as he waits and he perseveres, longing for those promises to be fulfilled. But Abram is a lot like us. In fact, when we read these texts, sometimes it's easy to think that these are ancient texts that have nothing to do with us. We are looking in the mirror when we read about these these figures in the scripture. Abram is a lot like us, and he needed, just like us, a lot of encouragement. We need encouragement. Abram needed encouragement. That brings us to the encouragement, the covenant promise. So we've seen the covenant maker, and now we see the covenant promise. Verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How can I have assurance, is what he's asking. We do not regard this question as being motivated by unbelief. Abram, like us, are like the man in Mark 9. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. That's why he's asking this question. He desires a sign to give him more assurance. And the covenants are the answer to that question, the answer to the longings of our heart. How can I know? How can I know? That's what he's asking. That's what we often ask. Why do we who believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which was at the heart of the Reformation, why? Can we be so confident that we have assurance? In fact, the Roman Catholics at the time at the Council of Trent, Cardinal Bellarmine in particular, said the great heresy of the Reformation was the doctrine of assurance. The Roman Catholics were saying, you can't have assurance. And the Reformers saying, yes, we can have assurance because our assurance is not grounded by our performance, but in the performance of another, the Lord Jesus Christ not because we're so wonderful, but because of the promises of the covenant which find their yes and amen in Jesus. What God has done on our behalf. Well, the rest of this passage is the answer to Abram's question. How can I know? It's a question that I'm often posed to me when people come to me about assurance, needing assurance. How can I have assurance? This text is going to be good for you. Well, look at me in verse 9. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half 
and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. I don't know why he did not do that. Maybe they were so small. But I've looked in vain. No one really addresses that. Now, at first we think, what in the world does this have to do with confirming Abram's faith? What in the world does this have to do with him answering Abram's question, how can I know? How can I have assurance? Well, this would have been known by the original audience. This was a covenant, a typical covenant ceremony. And so um, in these covenant ceremonies, they would take these animals, sacrifice them, cut them in half, and then the parties of the covenant would pass between them. As if to say, if I'm not faithful to the terms of the covenant, what happened to these animals will fall on me. The curse on these animals will fall on me. And so that's what's going on here. If I break the covenant, then I'll be torn in two just like these animals. And it's not the only place in the Bible that we see this. We also see it in Jeremiah 34. In Jeremiah 34, Nebuchadnezzar is smashing against the gates of Jerusalem. We know that that, that exile came in three different deportments. But this is at the end, and, and Judah realizes the reason they're in the state they're in, at least the faithful, is because they've broken covenant with God. And so all the leaders of the people call uh, all the people of uh, Judah together, and they renew their covenant. And we read this in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant, notice, which they made with me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. So they had made covenant. They had cut the calves in two. They had, uh, they had uh, moved between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. So I will give them into the hands of their enemies and into the hands of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beast of the air. In other words, they had reneged on their part of the covenant. And so God says, because you walk between those pieces, those sacrificed animals, and acknowledge that if I'm not faithful to the covenant, the curse falls on me, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Well, notice in verse 11, back to our text, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Abram drove them away. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but I do believe this foreshadows the attacks that will come upon Abram's offspring from Egypt and even other nations, but also God's protection. Abram drove them away. We'll come back to that. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Evidently, he had spent the daylight hours carrying out God's directives. And now darkness comes. Um, but in the darkness, God encouraged Abram. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring 
will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. So again, notice the context. The context, he's he's slain these animals, he's cut them up, and he's got them in rows, all right? Really hasn't been explained yet. We're going to come to it, though. But here he's making a promise. The Lord said, Know for certain your offspring will be soldiers in a land, not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The, the details of this prediction is so remarkable that liberals have said they had to have been written after the, effect, the fact. Um, but our God is omniscient and he's sovereign. So what he predicts comes to fruition. This was not written after the fact. Moses wrote this and he is, he is speaking about what happened to Abram. Okay. And so we see here six per, specific predictions. Let's just go through them quickly. He says, first of all, know for certain your descendants, your offspring will be sojourners in a land not theirs. When is that fulfilled? It's fulfilled in Egypt, isn't it? All right. They will be servants theirs. Or maybe your translation reads slaves and they will be afflicted. That is, they will be mistreated. I think that is the outworking of these, this vision of the birds of prey that came on the carcasses. Um, these these uh, birds of prey referenced Israel's abuse by the Egyptians. And here's why I believe that. Because one of their gods, now Egypt had about from 80 to 120 gods. All right? But one of their gods was the falcon god Horus, which was a bird of prey. And so I believe this represents Egypt in particular. All right? So they're going to be, they're, they're going to be afflicted by Egypt. And he's telling Abram, this is what's going to happen to your, your offspring. And then third, he says, it's going to happen for 400 years. For 400 years, for four generations. 400 years, this affliction will continue and then the fourth promise, he would judge that nation that they were in bondage to. And of course, we, we know how that judgment will come through 10 plagues, ending with the death of the firstborn sons. Then the fifth promise, they shall come out. What is that referring to? Well, that's referring to the exodus. God is telling Abram, your offspring is going to go in that land and they're going to be there 400 years. They're going to have a lot of heartache and they're going to be slaves, but I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to redeem them. And then sixth, they're going to come out with great possessions. And that is obviously fulfilled with the plunder of the Egyptians, Exodus chapter 11. In fact, it will be those possessions that they will use to build their tabernacle. Now, why is this prophecy important? Well, who was he originally writing to? Uh, Moses is originally writing to a people, and perhaps they knew tradition, and that tradition had been passed on, who were persevering in slavery. 
and they're being reminded there's, there's a termination date to our affliction. And God's going to be gracious and he's going to redeem us. But it would also have been a helpful word to those in the wilderness that uh, there's a termination date to their, to their affliction, that God always has a termination date. It's not open-ended. In the end, God is going to redeem his people. It would also have been a, a, an encouraging word to Abram because Abram is going to have to wait a long time. Some of you right now are waiting on something. And, and waiting is so very difficult. But remember, the purpose of waiting is not what you get at the end of the waiting. The purpose of the waiting is what you become while you're waiting. And that's what Abram is doing. God is preparing Abram to be the father of a multitude of nations. He's not ready yet. And so he has to go through the fire. He's not ready for the promise. He's not ready to be the father of Isaac. And so God has him in this period of waiting. But while he's waiting, he's given him promises. It's the promise-driven life. Well, notice in verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Shalom, that's the word. You shall be buried in a good old age. So Abram has to accept the fact that he is not going to possess the land in his lifetime. That's essentially what he's telling um, Abram here. That's a hard truth, but it's an encouragement to us because God is actually encouraging Abram. And Abram clearly came to believe that because here's what Hebrews says of that account. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Nothing here has foundations. Everything we enjoy in this life physically, materially, has no foundations, okay? And, and Abram is being taught that his hope is in another world, okay? His hope is in another city, the city of God, whose foundations will hold because the designer of that city and the builder of that city is God, all right? And it's teaching us to, to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, because this, the things of this earth have no foundations, no foundations. Uh, that said, Abram's seed would inherit physical land. Look with me in verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, that's 400 years. They live longer then. So I'm assuming that Moses is saying a generation is 100 years. For the Notice, here's why they would be in bondage for 400 years. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Who are the Amorites? The Amorites is, let me give you a fancy term, a synecdoche. You know what a synecdoche is? So uh, you farmers know what a synecdoche is, and you don't even know it maybe. When someone asks you, how many cows do you have? You say, I have 50 head. Well, you don't just mean craniums. That would be freaky. If you just have 50 cow heads in your pasture. The head represents the whole, all right? So this is synecdoche. The Amorites represent all of the Canaanites, okay? And here's what he is saying here. He is saying that there's coming a day when the iniquity and the wickedness 
of the Canaanites has reached the top of the cup, pouring over. And I'm going to use Israel as my punishing rod of justice on the Amorites. For four centuries that have to wait. But here God is also revealing his long suffering. Who's he revealing it to? The Canaanites. This long suffering was inscripturated by the Apostle Paul in Romans 2. Listen to this, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What Paul is saying is, if you're living a life of sin and rebellion right now, and you're still alive, don't mistake his forbearance for indifference. His forbearance means that he is giving you time to repent, okay? But don't presume upon it because there comes a day of reckoning. The Amorites had 400 years, but in those 400 years, the, their iniquity would reach its fullness. And they would take advantage of divine patience. Leviticus 18, when you really can work up your willpower, read Leviticus 18 sometime. It lists, and by the way, it looks like we're reading the newspaper in America today, 12 variations of sexual perversion that had been normalized in Canaan. It's almost as if we're reading a contemporary newspaper. And then we see this warning in Leviticus 18, 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. He's telling Israel that. The Canaanites are this way. You can't be this way. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And there was coming a day at the end of those 400 years of bondage, when the Amorites reach the point of no return. And it would be then God would unleash the flood of Israelites out of Egypt. And it's sobering. It's really sobering. Do you realize from this text, verse 16, God has a measure of sin that he'll put up with for a time, whether it's with the individual or with the nation. But then the balloon payment comes due. And he never tells us how much he'll put up with. Okay? And yet he's patient. I think that's one of the emphasis here. Indeed, the emphasis here, I think, is not on the wrath of God, but his patience. But one day... His patience will come to an end with the Canaanites. And if you're sitting here tonight and you haven't repented of your sin, do not presume on God's patience. You're not promised another day. God doesn't owe you another day. Only God knows the measure of sin he'll tolerate. And this leads to verse 17 in a very real way. Remember, God is answering the question given by Abraham, how can I know these things will happen? 
remarkable verse. Verse 17. This is the verse that I believe makes this passage one of the most underrated in the Bible. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, in the, Jerusalem, uh, the Jeremiah 34 text, who was it that passed between the pieces? It was the Israelites. It was the Jews, the Jews from Judah. But here, who is passing between those pieces? Fire is a frequent symbol of the divine presence. We see it in the burning bush. Exodus 3 is one example. Exodus 19, 18 at Sinai. In other words... This is God himself who passes between these sacrificed, these judged, if you will, animal parts. It's remarkable. We would expect Abram to do it, but God does it. God is saying, in effect, to Abram, Abram, be it done to me as has been done to these animal parts, if I do not fulfill my promises to you. Let the curse fall on me. Even if you're not faithful to the terms of the covenant, the curse will fall on me. Do you get that? Better that God take the curse than Abram's seed die. Sounds like Caiaphas, doesn't it, this morning? But not only will he secure every spiritual blessing promised by this, this remarkable covenant enactment, but he also promises a land. And in verses 18 to 21, we're given the boundaries of the promised land. This is the most comprehensive list uh, of the ites, if you will, in all the scripture. There's no list that's longer. Look with me in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So the covenant was ratified by God passing through the animal parts. Remarkable. You wonder how in the world is that going to go down? Well, we'll look at that in a moment. And he said, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and he's going to give us 10 population groups here. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And that is the land that God is promising Abram's seed. But even with that, Abram could not have conceived all that God had promised him. Let me give you this example that I have gleaned from uh, Greg Bill. He says, imagine your son in 1900 is going to graduate from college in a few years, and you promise him upon graduation a, a, a new horse and buggy. But between the time of the promise and the time of his graduation, something's invented. What is that? A car. 
When he graduates, he receives a car instead of a horse and buggy. Has the father been faithful to the promise? Yes. But the fulfillment of the promise is greater than he could have ever conceived. If the father had promised him a car, that would have made no sense to the son because the car hadn't been invented. Well, here is my point. God promised him a land, but here's what Paul says. It was better, better than anything Abram could have conceived. Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Did you get that? Not a horse and buggy, a car. Not just this plot of land in the ancient Near East, the world. He would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And in the same way, the promises made to us far exceed anything we could ever fathom. They far exceed what the human language could communicate. They're kept in heaven for us, Scripture says. We have a down payment. Paul says, having believed, you're marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Peter says that this inheritance was secured by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us, but it far exceeds what human language could ever say. Or communicate. And this we see played out even with Abraham. Let me close with this passage that I think is picking up this very text. And it's the writer of Hebrews. And he says, and we'll close here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And I think that's played out in part by God himself passing through the parts, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. In other words, not, my promises are so secure that if I don't keep the promises, the curse shall follow me. My promises are secure even if you don't keep the promises, the curse will fall on me. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He obtained it because of the promises. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. This is part of that oath ceremony. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, notice, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is a word to us. Genesis 15 is a word to us so that we might have encouragement to hold fast, to persevere. We have this, he says, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place by the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. I mean, you realize how shocking this passage is. God the overlord assuming the place of the servant all for the sake of the assurance of his people. And how shall we know? Look at the cross. Who hangs there? 
God's own son, the slaughtered sacrifice of the covenant that we might be assured of the forgiveness of sins, that we might be assured of our eternal inheritance. Our assurance is fundamentally grounded not in our performance or in the strength of our faith. It's grounded in the one who knew you couldn't obey enough, who knew you deserved the covenant curse, and so he took it for you. That's this word for us tonight. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We heard that 60 years ago. It takes on new meaning tonight. In the end, there will be no injustice. For those who are trusting in God's provision in the Son, who became a curse for us, the justice of God has fallen on your sin in the substitute. But as Adam and the musicians come forward, those who have not accepted God's provision in the Son, justice will come to you. It will come in the last day. But in the meantime, do not presume on his patience. The fact that you haven't been judged yet means God is forbearing with you. But don't take advantage of that. Don't presume on it. Come to the sin bearer. Come to the Christ who took the curse for our sin. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.